1: Hi, and welcome to episode 195 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We're slouching toward episode 200. I don't know which one of us is going to end up with that one. Um, my name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. I'm your host for today. Joining me as always, David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Grubbsy, how's it going?
0: Pretty decent. How are you, sir?
1: Pretty Good. Also joining us, Nathan Gilmore, who's an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan,
2: uh, I'm actually at the midpoint of the semester, so I'm tired.
1: That is like <laughs> it's still September. How can you be at the midpoint of the semester?
2: Because our finals end before Thanksgiving.
1: <sighs> I don't know if that's if that's awesome or horrible.
0: Uh, right now, it's tiring. It sounds pretty rad to me. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. It is true that oh. the
1: week the week between. Yeah. The week between Thanksgiving and finals, like y- you may as well just give them all a sleeping pill.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. and if we keep up our normal rotation, Nathan will be should be the host of 200.
1: Oh Good, I don't have to do it. Are we going <laughs> to do an episode about the 200th him? Uh,
0: the old 200. Um, <laughs> I, I don't even know if that's if that's a thing.
1: Well, our episode today is not on any of those things, but about Alan Jacobs' recent essay for Harper's called The Watchman. Um, we'll have a link to that essay on our website, christianhumanist.org. If for some reason you haven't read it, I think uh, it, it made the rounds pretty well among, I, I think, most people who listen to this show. So odds are you've already read it. If not, take a minute and go read it. It's, I don't know, six or seven pages. It's it's not a mm-hmm. long or difficult read. Uh, David, Jacobs' analysis depends on his definition of what I did not realize was a slippery term, but what which turns out to be a slippery term, public intellectual. We mm-hmm. did an episode on intellectuals several years ago, but I think his definition probably looks a little different than ours. What is Jacobs talking about when he talks about intellectuals, public or otherwise?
0: Well, a lot of what he does in here is cite examples of specific people that he would hold up as uh, models for what he's calling the Christian intellectual here and he also comes back and gives some helpful conceptual uh description as as well but in terms of people uh he cites uh a group uh a group of folks in the late 30s in England led by a guy named J.H. Oldham who was a he describes as a missionary and advocate for Christian unity, and this group included T.S. Eliot and some other um, British intellectual types. Uh, other people he he cites um, his his big two are C.S. Lewis and Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, he cites Auden, Dorothy Sayers. So the, he he seems to be fo- he's, he His attention seems to be especially focused on the. Pre-World War II, post-World War II, during World War II, he, he's he's kind of looking at that particular era um, for his examples, which which is interesting. And we may get into um, some of the, I guess, the, the historical reasons um, as we go on. But the conceptual stuff is what uh, sets him apart. He the watchman, he's is referring uh, to uh, uh, a quote from Karl Mannheim, uh, who is a a, a jewish uh, a Jewish writer um, in uh, b- before the the rise of the Nazi regime, uh, a Jewish writer in Germany, who calls the intellectual um, those whose special tasks is to provide an interpretation of the world to play the part of watchman in what otherwise would be a pitch black night. So the first of these uh, tasks of the intellectual is to be the watchman, to be the interpreter, to be the one who watches the times and explains them to the others. Um, what is, what is black night to everyone else uh, is, is intelligible to this intellectual. Uh, the other word that he uses in it is interpreters, uh, his, his, the idea seems to be that the intellectual, in some way, uh, straddles communities uh, that he can represent, or she can represent um, each of those communities to the other, and be the intelligible and winsome um, voice. Uh, in in this particular case, it's to to be the the voice of of the Christian community to the the world of intellectual discussion uh, which is largely academia but also apparently magazines like harper's um and then also be the face of of that intellectual or academic community um to within this the, the christian sphere so those two images um the watchman and uh the watchman and the interpreter are seem to be the two that, that kind of dominate uh, his his definitions. Anything else we want to fill that out with?
2: Yeah, I, I, the only thing I was thinking of, I and this probably shows more about my state of mind than about the essay is that, uh, you know, he he does kind of present this idea of the explainer, uh, and at the beginning of the piece, he sort of invokes the rise of a sort of right-wing populism in Europe and, you know, Trumpism in America and Brexit in between and uh, says that, you know, I, I, he didn't say this explicitly, but I mean, the structure of the essay seems to assume that, you know, the role of the intellectual in our own moment might be to build a bridge between the bucket of deplorables uh, to use a <laughs> recent phrase and the, you know, readers of Harper's magazine and, and, Really, once he sets up that scenario, I don't feel like he comes back to that at all. Uh, And honestly, I mean, the article gets better once he abandons that uh, problem and just kind of goes on uh, offering a solution in search of a problem. But uh, I I thought that that was an odd beginning to the essay. Hmm.
1: I I would add something that comes up not so much in the essay as Mm -hmm. in some Twitter conversations Jacobs had after the essay, which is that the, the public intellectual seems to me to be opposed in some sense to the activist. So one of the questions somebody asked him on Twitter is, is how come Martin Luther King isn't a public intellectual? And the impression I got, and I was trying to find the tweets, but I, I couldn't in time. So if I'm getting this wrong, I apologize. The, the impression I got is that because King is not so much explaining as fighting for something, he... Mm-hmm. Uh, he public intellectual may not be the best title to assign to him which okay. is not a, which I, I i'm sure would not be an attack on king's intellect or anything like that we're just talking about roles people play just like the three of us are probably in jacob's definition not christian public intellectuals because mm. we're speaking to largely a specialized christian audience largely i know mm. we have i know we have non-christian listeners to whom i am thankful and maybe right. Uh, maybe we love you yeah and and maybe <laughs> maybe for those listeners, we do serve some of the role that, that Jacobs is talking about, but let's be honest our our primary l- listeners are uh are Christians who share mm-hmm. most of our theological commitments fair enough and and I,
2: I, and I want to pause here and say that my uh, favorite iTunes review of our show by the way, remains someone who doesn't much like evangelicals, but she says uh we have stolen her stereotypes and she wants them back.
1: <laughs> so maybe, I mean, maybe, that, in, that, maybe in that sense, we kind of are the sort of uh-huh. public intellectual I, I I feel so weird announcing myself to be a public intellectual, especially since we have a relatively small audience, a couple thousand people usually download the show. So, I mean, we're hardly Niebuhr. We're not even, we're not even Alan oh, Jacobs, sure, sure. but, but, um, I, I, I would like to think maybe on some small level we're filling that role. I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, we're at least avoiding the deplorable bucket. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> but the, the, the buckets of deplorables and binders full of women.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yes. And the 40% of takers. Oh, my gosh. Um, do, do we want to say something about who Alan Jacobs is before we move on much further? Yeah, Jacob's, I'd, I'd Jacob's, like for Michael to say that. Yeah, Jacobs yeah. taught
1: taught English at Wheaton for decades. Um, mm-hmm. He he wrote a book that was fairly popular a few years ago called uh, "The Pleasures of Reading in the Age of Distraction." He is mm-hmm. one of the very best things about subscribing to Books and Culture uh, is his monthly essay in there, and there are lots of good reasons to subscribe to Books and Culture. By the way, mm-hmm. um, I think now he is he's at Baylor. I know that for sure, which I think means he's your rival, David. Yeah, um, and I, I think he heads their honors program. Although traditionally he's been a scholar of, oh, I, I don't want to get this wrong, but I, th- I think he I think he's a scholar of like 18th and 19th century British lit. But yeah. he, you know, his his interests are clearly all over the place. Yeah. I think his most recent book is about um, the history of the Book of Common Prayer. If If mm-hmm. our listeners remember the profiles interview I did way back when with Mark Laramore, the 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 biography of the Book of Job. Jacobs has the mm-hmm. Book of Common Prayer in that same c- series. Oh, okay. So, I mean, cool. he's a he's a big name in our field, one of the, I would say, one of the very biggest names. Um, I, I'm not, to, to his point in this essay, I'm not sure how well he, he's known outside the world of Christian intelligentsia.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I pulled up his his website is aj dot org a y g a y j a y dot sorry j a y dot org um, in his bio there, which might actually explain some things from this essay. Apparently, he's working on a book entitled "The Year of Our Lord, Nineteen Forty Three: Christian Intellectuals and Total War." Hmm. I'm to sure when he releases Harvard it, University one of us Press.
1: is going after him for profiles.
0: Yeah. So anyway point 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 being if he seems super interested in pre-daring and post World War II and the issue of war which you know I am sure that will come up as we get going um yeah he's writing a book on that <laughs> and,
1: and um and actually his his essay in the latest books and culture is about the late prose of W H Auden mm-hmm. so I, I mean he yeah he knows whereof he speaks
0: Mm -hmm. he's he's done a lot with lewis as well um that's yeah like like i said he's he's about as
1: major as you get in in our relatively narrow field of christian um christian literary critics Mm -hmm. there there are a few people who are on his level but i I can't think of anybody who i would say is above him can you, you am i am i misrepresenting him am i sucking up in case he's listening (laughs)
0: See now you Uh, won't
1: dispute me in case he's listening
0: Yeah I I, I just don't know I just don't know Um, I, I
1: have read him with great pleasure for years Well, in uh, Jacob's analysis, the golden age of the Christian intellectual was both historically grounded and shorter than we might expect, at least shorter than I it (laughs) to be. Uh, Nathan, what material and cultural conditions produced these intellectuals, and, and how did they conceive of their role in the world?
2: One factor that he doesn't explicitly name, but because of the historical period, we probably should mention is the rise of radio as a mass medium. Uh, he does note that C.S. Lewis gave radio addresses, and of course, this is an era when uh, you have telecommunication really uh, to a greater extent than you've had for most of hi- human history up to that point. You know, there are telegraphs as early as the 1870s, telephones have been around for a while, but as far as getting a message out to the English speaking world uh, instantly, that's something that's really kind of coming into its own there in the first half of the 20th century. So that's certainly a material condition. Another condition, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit more when we get to some of the responses to Jacobs, is a sort of cultural modern Protestantism uh, that seems to define the culture of the UK and of the USA. Uh, So in other words... You have these circles that you know we've mentioned before where you have some Roman Catholics to be sure, you have some Jewish thinkers, you have some free thinkers and atheists. But the sort of cultural idiom, if you will, is a sort of modern, not liberal in the 1970s sense, but certainly liberal in the sort of Lionel Trilling sense, Protestantism. The reason that it is shorter, at least according to the argument of this essay, Uh, Is that, you know, it really begins with the post-World War I era, with the rise of Stalinism and fascism and National Socialism, and then it largely comes to an end uh, in the post-war years, and the argument that he offers is because there becomes enough of a diversification of culture, or at the very least a specialization of culture, that it's possible to have an internal evangelical academic and intellectual culture in a way that wasn't there before the war. Uh, so, I mean, really you're talking about a span of, you know, maybe 25, 30 years uh, from roughly the mid to late 30s to roughly the mid 40s. Um, David, what other bits does, and, and, and I'll admit at this point I've, I've read the responses to Jacob's more recently than I've read Jacob's. So I'm probably mixing some things into this brew that are not properly Jacobs. What other things from Jacobs do you remember? Uh,
0: you, you've hit you, you've you've hit the the high points um, that that uh, that I would have covered. Um, I, I liked the the, um, the 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 nice phrases that that uh, he applies, uh, like subaltern counterpublics, to describe mm-hmm. the the evangelical. Presses and magazines and you know those other kind of forums that developed post World War Um, Two, but yeah, he's uh, the 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 narrowness of his focus was one of the things that was most interesting to me about this. Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, it might be tempting. Um, to say that an increasingly secular society pushed the public, Christian intellectual out of the mainstream of American culture. That is, I'm sure, before I read this essay, what the, the analysis I would have given. Jacobs mm-hmm. thinks, and I'm sure not, still not sure if I, if I agree with him, Jacobs thinks it's more accurate to say that, quote, the Christian intellectuals chose to disappear. David, why did they disappear? Where did they go? And do you think he's right that it was a choice?
0: Well, he uh, in, in particular, he cites um, uh, Richard John Newhouse uh, is one of his examples of someone who who kind of starts off in this position of what of of, of what he considers um, a uh, an intellectual and then uh, according in, in the terms he's, that he's talking about and then moves off in a different direction and. Um, He's he cites him uh, in his support for the civil rights movement in the 60s, vocal opposition to the Vietnam War, um, kind of being this this public voice of of Christianity in those in those positions. Um, Apparently, they met and Reinhold Niebuhr remarked, I'm told you're the next Reinhold Niebuhr. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: But then uh, with Roe v. Wade, um, he also opposes abortion. And at that point. Um, a lot of his, uh, a lot of his popularity, um, in the circles that, that he'd been respected, um, waned, uh, and so he uh, he institutes and uh, uh, he 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 tries to establish um, some other uh, some other venues. Ultimately, in 1990, establishes the Institute on Religion, Public Life, um, which produces the magazine First Things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's when he brings in his phrase "subaltern counterpublics," the idea of of uh, people who are who are being excluded from the conversation, developing their own sphere in which they can talk about things. But that um, uh, subaltern counterpublics. This is this is the. Uh, This is uh, Jacob's subaltern counterpublics are essential for those who never had seats at the table of power, but they can also be immensely appealing to those who feel that their public presence and authority have waned. It is possible that Newhouse could have worked harder to reclaim a seat at the table. But Newhouse and many who shared his core convictions made the prudential judgment that this renewed access would be impossible to acquire so it it's that seems to be the 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 moment where he's he's saying yes there were people who had the seat at the table where the big ideas were discussed people representing christians but something changed in the culture they didn't feel the acceptance that they did and instead of fighting to stay at the table they established alternate venues where they could function, um, more freely. And that, and that, 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 that phrase, the prudential judgment, um, that, that's, that's the word I think where, uh, where you're saying Jacob, when Jacob says it was a choice that, um, people like Newhouse made the prudential judgment to, um, to take, to take their voices, uh, to these, uh, to these alternate venues. Um, and and arguing arguing with that would
1: require a counterfactual, right? It, mm-hmm. it would say, well, if, if Newhouse hadn't done that, if he had stayed and tried to carve out a place for himself, well, then mainstream intellectual culture would he'll still have something of a theological vocabulary today. And because, I mean, that's completely unprovable, obviously. And mm-hmm. so, so it ends well, up... Yeah. It ends up. It ends up being a statement you can't argue with. It's a statement that I think makes sense, but still, something in me resists it. Maybe, maybe I'm just mm-hmm. more of a fatalist than than Jacobs. Uh, maybe I think we would have the, the language, the theological language, would have would have disappeared mm-hmm. from mainstream intellectual culture, even if Newhouse hadn't retreated. I don't yeah. know. Maybe I'm a coward.
0: Yeah, I've. I mean, obviously, you know, in, in his specific instance, Newhouse did choose to start the institute he started with the magazine he started, right? I mean, there are a series of choices there. But um, when he takes an, what what had become an enormously unpopular position... Uh, And this is this is Jacobs. Uh, Newhouse found himself increasingly isolated from his former companions in social protest. Television programs were less likely to invite him to share his thoughts. Many of the journalistic outlets that had been receptive to him closed their doors. I mean, that sounds an awful lot as if he's not just choosing to withdraw.
2: Well, he's choosing a certain kind of response to the rejection, though. Yes, I mean, yeah. And again, I mean, Michael's point about the counterfactual is is right on target there, because you Mm. would have to imagine an alternate history where, you know, instead of uh, starting this foundation, you know, a new house. And I don't even know what the scenario would look like. Right. I mean, you know, uh, stood at the doors
0: of the New Yorker and screamed until they let him in.
2: Well, yeah, or, or you know, <laughs> staged you know public protests, a la anti-Vietnam protests, or you know, um, we
1: we may actually be able to imagine this better than we think we can. What if Newhouse had taken the Gary Will's route? Now, Gary Will's is more politically liberal. I don't really know what Gary Will's position on abortion is, but Gary Will's has managed to carve out a space for himself. In the New York Review of Books, for example, he writes other places as well. He publishes a book every 18 months. A, mm-hmm. a, a place where he is Catholic, I, I think he probably has some problems with institutional Catholicism, and the institutional Catholicism probably has some problems with him, but he still uses what is basically a theological language. Mm-hmm. I, mean, it's, I mean, is it is it possible to imagine a world where Newhouse did that? Or, or is that fundamentally impossible for a more conservative Christian voice?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess that's something I wish he had addressed. And then, and honestly, I mean, he doesn't even go to, to Will's. He goes to Ross Douthit at some point. And he, I he wish he had mentions, He a,
1: just mentions Douthit's book. Bad religion. Oh, I know, but I
2: wish he had taken a couple sentences to note that. I mean, he's writing a weekly piece for the new the new york times oh yeah yeah Yeah, true i mean that's i mean i don't think he's
0: the one i don't think he's the one that jacobs wants in his corner though
2: well that might be it because he is more of an advocate figure than a you know a sort of lionel trilling uncomfortable in any camp sort of thinker
0: well yeah, I also don't think he likes his positions, but you know. Oh so, yeah, that too. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah,
1: I, I didn't get that. I didn't get that sense.
0: Well, it, 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 when you listen to the kinds of things that he says about Marilyn Jacobs, and and I don't want to short circuit it. Sorry, sorry, Marilyn Robinson. I'm sorry. Um, I looked at Alan Jacobs' name, and suddenly it. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, sorry, Marilyn Robinson. Um, and we'll 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 get there, but. Um, there's some things that he says about her, and then things that he doesn't say that um, to me looked like tells, but maybe that's just because I'm a suspicious
1: conservative. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. But I I, um, I, I wonder, I wonder if the complaints he has about Marilyn Robinson, he would have similar complaints about Gary Wills But let's, uh, we'll, let's return to Will's when we talk about Robinson later on, so that we don't yeah, spoil good. that discussion. I can't help but think about the Watchmen in connection to Jacobs' former colleagues, uh, Mark, Mark Knowles' 1994 book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. Uh, I, I don't think it would be saying too much that Scandal really went a long way toward making the Christian college an intellectually respectable place. But if I'm reading Jacobs right, it seems he might say that the Christian college became too respectable. And I think it's telling that he moved from Wheaton to Baylor, which is really a school on the outskirts of the Christian college universe. Mm -hmm. Am I way off in thinking that Jacob sees Christian colleges as part of the problem?
2: I think he certainly sees them as uh, a manifestation of that voluntary departure. Uh, You know, obviously there were Christian colleges uh, before world war II Uh, As someone no doubt will write in and say, if I don't say it first, the big, you know, American universities started out as preacher's colleges. Uh, So, you know, this is not to say that uh, after World War II, something completely unrelated to anything before World War II happened. But I think you can say that an intelligible shift happened after World War II in that as the, you know, evangelical movement starts to differentiate itself from the fundamentalism of the first half of the 20th century and from the modernism of the 19th century, that that sort of distinctive third way uh, takes its shape to a large extent in the Christian colleges of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, And so I think that, you know, although he doesn't specifically mention Christian colleges that I remember... Uh, I I think that we could reasonably anticipate that he would say that, you know, the folks who are the faculty there, the parents who send their students there, so on and so forth, uh, are at the very least uh, giving in to this sort of cultural shift rather than going to battle the way that, you know, in Michael's counterfactual, someone might otherwise. Um, I mean, David, as you read it, I mean, is that basically where Christian colleges fit into Jacob's schema I,
0: I I can't help but but f- see him looking at them as places of retreat. Mhm. Um which which is ironic for a guy that was, you know, that worked at Wheaton and now works at Baylor. Um which are, you know, some of the some of the closest places to, you know, evangelical Ivy League that I know of. Mhm. Um Yeah, I, I, again, it, it's it, it's it's like what you said at the beginning of the conversation. Um, I'm not always entirely clear what he wants, and and if he can if he can imagine some kind of counterfactual America in which the kinds of Christian academics that are working within Christian colleges and universities in the way that they're working within Christian colleges and universities, if he can imagine them functioning and I'm not just including the evangelical Protestants, I'm also including um, the, the Catholic college and university system um, in mm-hmm. the places where um, they are still um, that where, where that where they don't view that, that background as something that's, that's, that's an interesting nostalgic part of their background.
1: Right, or no. where the where it hasn't just completely dissolved into social issues where, where it's not just mm-hmm. seeking justice for all and vague things like that.
0: Right, right, right right. You know can can he seriously imagine an alternate America in which all of those people are working at Princeton or or even you know the 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 research one state use? I mean can can he imagine that world can he imagine the world in which James K Smith is you know is on payroll at Penn State <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, because that's that's amazing i wish i could live inside of his head and imagine that world it must be it must be beautiful and i'd like i'd really like to to know how 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 he thinks that we're going to get there well, well let's
1: uh, let, let's do slow down. <laughs> I, the, I do not at all get the impression that he says the world would be better off without Christian colleges. What he says is the sort of public intellectual represented by somebody like Reinhold Niebuhr isn't mm-hmm. going to come out of a Christian college.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which I don't
1: think he's gunning for your job, David. Or, although I don't know, you do work at HBU, H- so.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, if there's any gunning going on in that in that particular relationship, it's the other way around.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it's a it's a it's a horse swatting a fly with its tail. That's how Bethel about us. Na,
0: now, 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 now. <laughs> we're not we're not a fly.
1: That's true, especially once you pay for our conference. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you guys are going to gunning me so much in trouble.
1: And anyway, anyway. Am, I, am I wrong that, that I, I don't think he's against the Christian colleges and institution just just pointing out maybe that it has been bad for the existence of Christian public intellectuals? I, According I think to the kinds
0: think. of public intellectuals that he cites as examples, yes. Right.
2: So, I, I agree with David. I mean, within his schema, yes. I mean, as we roll on, I, 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 I'm going to call his schema into question. But again, I'll save those bullets for later since we're gunning
1: sure well, for example, I can't as you said, I can't imagine James K. Smith at Penn State. I don't think he has a huge non Christian following, does he?
2: Not that I'm aware of
1: uh, and and it, it's not that he's not a rigorous academic or intellectual i think i think we've made our position on james k smith abundantly clear mm-hmm. on this podcast but but he is largely writing to christians whether i don't know what his um what his motivation is when he sits down and writes if he sees himself as writing mm-hmm. largely to christians but certainly mm-hmm. that's who's reading his books and he's publishing them on christian presses by and large
0: but i do think that he is serving I do think he is serving as a watchman and an interpreter of of the culture to that Christian audience that he writes to it's that he's not doing it the other way about
1: right which is what jacob's wants he he wants the he wants the public sphere to have some sort of theological language to use and but the only way you're going to get theological language into the public sphere is if you get someone of genuine christian commitment and you have them speak to the culture Rather than to the church, mm-hmm. right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And and I'll go ahead and fire my first salvo here. I was gonna I was gonna hold off, but I mean I think that one of the places where I have trouble following Jacobs is that he sees a culture in the singular much more than I do. Mm. Mm. So I mean I, I'm thinking you know I mean the fact that you know the most watched cable news network is Fox News, but even it only has less than a percent of the American public watching it, tells me that something has happened to the whole concept of a public culture since 1958 that Jacobs isn't really taking account of in this essay. I
1: think it's a good Mm -hmm. point, and I I was interested, I think it was you, Nathan, who talked about the radio earlier. Mm -hmm. I've been reading a book about the 1950s, um, by David Halberstam, I guess I should say she's called the '50s, <laughs> and uh, he uh-huh. ta- he talks about the uh, 1952 presidential campaign. And before 1952, the the way the way politicians would use mass media uh, was they would go on the radio and make a 30 minute speech. Right, it would be basically a stump speech that was broadcast to the nation over the radio. Mm. In 1952, the uh, this guy. Um, Oh, I can't remember his name, but he, he I think his last name is Reeves. He he is mm-hmm. the he's one of the models for Don Draper on Mad Men. Okay. He Eisenhower he takes Eisenhower and he puts him on television and I, because Eisenhower doesn't want to be on television, Reeves, I think his name is, um, has him do like 15-20 second spots. Well, mm-hmm. when you when your public culture looks like 15-20 second spots instead of 30-minute speeches, you're not going to have a space for public intellectuals on mass media, right, likewise right. when you go when you go from the New York Review of Books, which I understand still exists, when you go from <laughs> that to websites, people don 't read entire articles on websites right i mean that 's been proven. People read about a third of them and pass them along there 's not, mm-hmm. not really a way to have the sort of substantive public um, conversation that would have been more possible when more people were reading long form arguments in little magazines as uh as Trilling calls them somewhere.
2: Right. And and to go in a different direction Michael, I think your point is entirely valid there. The, the direction I was thinking was more along the lines that we don't have a single pop culture now the way that we did when the Beatles were the biggest band in the world, right? Right, because we have more than
1: 3 uh, television networks for example. Yeah,
2: yeah, and you know, uh, even as early as you know the, the 1990s when first things was getting around, uh, you know you don't have the web yet, but you certainly have FM radio to where instead of you know four radio stations you have 40. Uh, you certainly have you know, the, the emergence of independent publishers in a far greater number than you had before. So I mean, I, I think that that decentralization of culture is a bigger factor in what's going on. So I mean my, my sense is, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this more as we roll along, that the influence on the culture that Jacob sort of longs for with this nostalgia isn't even something that the scientists have, as he fears, but that, you know, people like Steven Pinker or, you know, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think, I mean, even of popularizers like uh, the oh, shoot, the uh, astronomy guy doesn't like philosophy. DeGrasse uh, uh, Tyson. That's the one, that's the one. Uh, You know, I mean, even they are talking to, roughly speaking, an audience the size of a Fox News audience, to where it's substantial, you can make money on it, but it's not by any means identical with the American culture in the singular.
1: So in other words, the problem is not that the public intellectual sphere lacks theological language, it's that it lacks any language, or any language that's shared by more than 5% of the people reading.
2: Yeah, or the, yeah. I mean, basically, that it lacks a public.
0: It, yeah it 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 lacks it lacks a singular.
2: Hmm. <laughs> but anyway, like I said, I mean, I, I was trying to save that, but uh, you kept uh, probing that question, Michael, and uh, and my answer relies on that observation.
1: <laughs> well, late in the essay, Jacobs discusses two would be Christian public intellectuals who, for various reasons, don't manage to fill the roles once filled by Auden and Niebuhr. The first is Cornell West, who has become really, really very controversial in academia the last few years, and not mm-hmm. always for good reasons. He was always controversial. Now he's controversial for reasons that are not quite as admirable as they once were. Yeah. David, Nathan has said in the past he's completely incapable of criticizing West. <laughs> so I'm going to let you do it instead. Where does Cornell West go wrong?
0: Right. Um... He he cites West's um, kind of uh, art, uh, what he describes uh, as his, uh, uh, his prophetic Christian witness, which is the way West talks about himself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then says, but, but, after lengthy stints at Harvard and Princeton, he has recently moved to Union Theological Seminary in New York City, which is where Reinhold Niebuhr also worked. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, okay, but you know, if you want to be like, "Where's our Reinhold Niebuhr?" Um, does that mean you know, Reinhold Niebuhr worked there? What, anyway? But it it, it seems that uh, from what from what places, one best suited to witness to what one believes to be core Christian truths in a manner that is both free and audible, and the suggestion seems to be that in moving from um, from these universities to the seminary. That West is embracing the kind of sec- self exile that that um, you know that, that that Jacobs is is lamenting. Um, he cites his his extremism um, as uh, as a factor, but uh, no, but also his um, his cri- his criticism of. Um, the Democratic Party mainstream, in particular, his criticism of uh, President uh, Barack Obama uh, as you, know, these are moments in, in which uh, Cornell West lost his audience. Which, you know, again, is he not supposed to criticize the president? Because I thought one of the things that was supposed to be happening, is he, is he just supposed to interpret? Is he never supposed to call anyone out? Right, and
1: when he he says the problem for West is he's ignored by both sides of it in his inheritance, which you would think would make him, make him, more suited for this, right? Well, right. yeah, right.
0: Uh, I mean, if he's seeing these these Christian intellectuals as necessarily people who are between the worlds, they're not going to be listened to by people in in the two worlds they have a foot in, especially in the kinds of especially the kinds of folks who will suspect your belonging merely because you are straddling the worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, there's plenty in this essay to indicate that on both sides, in both of these two worlds, the the intellectual academic world and the Christian world, um, that there are people who are going to be saying, yeah, we're not sure that you can sit on that fence and talk to us both in the way that you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for Cornell West, but you know, it's, you know, may, maybe there are things in his manner that help cost him his audience. And those are <laughs> things that you can critique. Uh, but at the same time, you know, how much, how much is he going to get, going to keep his audience even if he says those things in the most winsome way possible
1: i just i don't think he talks enough about west to really get at what the problem with cornell west is right now and yeah, I, yes. I, I think it may be it may be helpful and I'll, I'll put a link to this in the show notes too to go look at michael eric dyson's essay from i think last year called Cornell West's Rise and Fall. It was the New Republic. Dyson is an mm-hmm. acolyte of West who had a falling out as a lot of people have.
2: Yeah, and, and boy is that a bitter essay. It
1: really is, but it's it's telling Ooh. because I, I think a lot of us have a sense that while Cornell West is still very public, he's not as much of an intellectual as he once was. He's not putting out really high quality intellectual work anymore. His last yeah. book, mm-hmm. as I recall, was an autobiography that he didn't even write Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he,
2: he, from his public talks. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, yeah. I
1: mean, this is the guy who in 1982 put out Prophesied Deliverance, which is one of the, you know, really, really great works of African American theology and social criticism. He's not doing work like that anymore. Now, it's not entirely mm-hmm. fair to blame someone for not consistently doing great work for 35 years. You know. I mean, how
0: many elderly professors rest, rest on their laurels in a similar manner? And,
1: and it's good. He, he is essentially the only member of the liberal intelligentsia who regularly criticizes President Obama. And, mm-hmm. and like that's good, except when you look at the way he criticizes it, he looks like a spurned lover rather than somebody with genuine political convictions. And yeah. I think Dyson's essay yeah. gets at that, too. It seems like the reason the reason he criticizes Obama is not so much he he disagrees with him politically although I'm sure he does it's that Obama refused to kiss his ring sufficiently Mm -hmm. and that's a a bigger problem and one maybe not necessarily connected to um, West's status as a public intellectual but I know that Mm -hmm. 10 years ago I definitely would have said Cornel West is a public intellectual and in 2016 Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure
2: Right. Well, and I think uh, even if we step back from the Obama question in particular, I, I think this illustrates one of the paradoxes of the public intellectual in the age of publisher or perish, right? Uh, mm-hmm. As Michael just indicated, I mean, you know, the people that we consider the intellectuals of our age are people who are holed up writing their next book rather than going out in public and protesting ferguson missouri and you know making appearances on television shows and so on and so forth right Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's it's one of those fascinating things where you know i mean when i think of the folks who influence me the most intellectually they don't have a great publication record because they were spending all their times teaching little snots like me Mm -hmm. right and so i mean I, i realize that i'm straying away from the category of public intellectual because we think of public as publication, but I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, Cornell West's case in particular illustrates some of the paradoxes in what our standards are for considering someone a real intellectual.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I, I mean, I don't know if Jacobs would agree with that stuff or not, but I think a couple more mm-hmm. paragraphs about the trajectory of West's career would have been really helpful mm-hmm. for understanding why we can't really count on him as a Christian public intellectual. Even yeah. though, I mean, I, I don't doubt West Christianity. I, I think he has some personal problems. And even, even though he, he really did used to speak truth to power cool. in a very important way. And he was, he was um, rather undiscriminating about who whom he spoke power to. He, he was mm-hmm. not standing on the left berating the right all the time. He was perfectly willing to berate the, the left. And it's, it's sad that we, we seem to have lost that.
2: Hmm.
1: Well, uh, the other figure Jacobs mentions is Marilyn Robinson. He calls her the finest living American novelist. That's you know, that's a, I don't think a controversial statement. But he criticizes her more public nonfiction, especially this essay called "Fear" and an interview with Barack Obama. Both of them published in the New York Review of Books. Nathan, what's his problem with Robinson's work?
2: The persona that Jacobs describes, and, and I'll have to confess, I like I said, I'm at you know midterm mania stage of the semester, so I didn't have a chance to run down uh, Robinson's essay. If one of you two has read it, you can speak to it here in a moment. Uh, is that in this essay, Fear, and also in this uh, interview, uh, her persona is the person who says that, cosmetically, I share these things with Christianity. I wear a cross necklace just like they do but that ultimately on the level of what really matters, which is to say, you know, sort of the tenets of a sort of polite, East Coast-educated, liberal subculture, uh, I just wish that, you know, I didn't have to associate with those barbarians. Now, I'm I'm overplaying it a little bit, but, <laughs> you know, the picture Jacobs paints is someone who uh, sort of claims Christian identity to sort of be the Exotic person with interesting stories to tell at the dinner party, uh, but who doesn't really have any inclination, I'll put it that way, uh, to sort of stand in that prophetic tradition that we just talked about with Cornell West. In other words, uh, she presents herself as someone who is a Christian insofar as Christian means a mainline Protestant who therefore shares most of the large concerns with the readers uh, that she already has and isn't all that interested in challenging those core convictions from a position of witness to something that lies beyond it. Um, now, Michael, I mean, I, I, I know you've read more Robinson than I have, just because I, she's, she's one of those authors, every time her name comes up, I realize I still haven't read her, and I lament. But uh, d- did I basically capture what Jacobs is after there, and I mean, do you think he gets it basically right?
1: Yeah, and and I do. I, I, um, I the the essay fear is largely about gun control, and I am I am with with the liberals on this. I'm I'm pro gun control, and yet I remember reading that and not liking the way she talked about conservative Christians. Um mm-hmm. it, it, dismissive, like you said, like I'm embarrassed to be associated with these people, no real empathy for them, and certainly if if Jacobs's definition of a public intellectual is true I, I i I don't see how at least in that essay she could qualify as one. Now, my understanding, I haven't read much of her nonfiction, but my understanding is that she has other essays where she like she has an essay where she defends John Calvin, for example. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and and in in that sense, I think maybe maybe you could call her a Christian public intellectual. But certainly, the these are the two most noteworthy recent pieces from her, and neither neither one of them um, would fit Jacobs' definition.
0: Hmm.
1: David, do you have anything to add to that?
0: Well, there's a couple thing, a couple kind of claims that he makes in here regarding to her. Um. Or re- regarding her, he, he he describes her as uh, in her fiction. She offers a largely secular a parenthesis largely secular secular audience picture of what the world looks like when it's irradiated by faith. Okay, so his largely secular audience, and then later on, um, I want to say he made a he, you know, he makes a, a, another kind of reference to her as as one that um, the Christian community just doesn't really have regard for um which is um extraordinarily strange to me because the way the, i don't read contemporary fiction at all and the reason why i knew about marilyn robinson is because john piper recommended her Right, right. I feel like uh, and, and any Tim, Christian
1: who reads talks about Marilyn Robinson.
0: Yeah, um, mm-hmm. Tim Keller recommended her. Um, if you if you go on uh, to thegospelcoalition.org, and that's about as big evangelical as you get, and look mm-hmm. for Marilyn Robinson, and you will find there's a hundred and two hits, and most of them are either interviews with her, links to interviews with her, or Um, a a standard uh, article or a standard kind of column that they do called on my shelf in which they interview kind of prominent evangelical pastors and theologians and whatnot and ask them what they're reading and they're all reading her. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's really kind of weird to me to, to see the way he figures her as, Oh, the Christians aren't listening to her when that's how I found out about her. And, and, and the response that I got from, you know, wh- I remember when that, um, you know, when uh, the article Fear came out, um, when she uh, kind of talked about, it, it, when she basically, it, it was her own bucket of deplorables moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, the res- and, and what I heard from a lot of these evangelicals like John Piper who recommended her was, man, Marilyn Robinson, I love your novels, they are wonderful. They sing to my soul, why can't you be fair to me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, anyway, I, I, I found that extraordinarily interesting. But the biggest complaint that Jacobs has about her is that she doesn't confront Obama about Guantanamo. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, is uh, OK, if that's if that's the move that he wanted her to make. OK, that's fair. But does her being a good Christian intellectual or not depend on that?
1: I would say, I, I would say, I'm not sure it's correct for public intellectuals of any stripe to be super friendly with major politicians. You know what I mean? Maybe, right. maybe friendly, but but there was a weird sort of sycophancy. In that Marilyn Robbins in interview that, that he talks about, mm-hmm. so so I get his discomfort there you you do kind of wish she was a little more like Cornell West, but i also I also don't well, get the sense that like she's sucking up that, that I, I call I said there's sycophancy, sycophancy, but i i don't I don't see her as like seeking the highest power. I think she probably really does admire Obama,
0: yeah, say more like the honeymoon period. Right, I mean, you describe Cornell West as the spurned lover. Well, a lot of a lot of the relationship that it seems to be between different people in the intelligentsia and this particular politician is one of he woos like Prince Charming, and they re, and they respond that way. And then when Prince Charming doesn't doesn't follow up on his sweet words, um, they react as as the wooed scorned. You know, I, right? I, it, that, that, but that has a lot to do with with just the political personality. I think that 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 he has in regard to that um, to that demographic. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I think um, I think I think maybe Jacobs' point is Robinson's chief public identity is as a as a political liberal rather than it being as a Christian.
0: Hmm. Hmm.
1: He says, um, this is the last paragraph of his uh, discussion of Robinson. Still, it is noteworthy how consistently inward and solitary the faith of the characters in Robinson's novels is, including that of her most compelling creation, the elderly pastor John Ames in Gilead. The community of church is not a strong element in these people's lives. They tend not to speak for anyone or anything more than themselves, and the conversations that they have about faith are mostly internal. I can't help wishing that someone, someone of Marilyn Robinson's stature and gifts, would tell readers of the New York Review of Books that such church communities need not be scorned or feared, and then tell those church communities the same things about the readers of the New York Review of Books. And, and, and that, that, is, that is disappointment more than anything, right? I mean, that is, mm-hmm. that is him wishing that Robinson was more willing to bridge the divide instead of preaching the gospel with words if necessary. Do, do you know what I mean? It it yeah. it seems like it seems like her status as a Christian public intellectual is mostly the fact that she is Christian, rather rather mm-hmm. than that she is trying to communicate Christian daily life to non Christian readers. And and mm-hmm. I suspect we could say the same thing about Gary Wells. I mean, he does not mention Wells, but I suspect if he brought him in. He'd say, "Wills, Wills is an example, right? I mean, Wills is a is a Christian man. He's he he is clearly committed to his version of liberal Catholicism, but most of the time, Wills doesn't seem terribly interested in communicating that to his secular readers. Mm-hmm. And, in, and a lot of times, he seems more willing to critique the church than to critique the liberal culture, which is fine, but it's not what it's not what." Jacobs wants Christian public intellectuals mm-hmm. to do. Fair enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and is it, is it something, I mean, yeah, it, is, it, is it relevant to say that, that those two examples, um, uh, Gary Wills, Marilyn Robinson, um, that to what extent are they being translators of the Christian to the intellectual world when what they mainly model is, hi, I am someone with God. But your politics so that you could come to God, too, and still keep your politics, which if if that if that's kind of the the general essence of the way that they're representing Christianity, then it looks like the politics is God.
1: Yeah, I mean, if 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 our listeners listen to the recent City of Man with the uh, what was the what was the fellow's name?
0: Yeah,
1: the interview with him, he he talks about he talks about his relationship with the Black Lives Matter movement. He uses this Caribbean proverb, you got to eat the fish and spit out the bones. And mm-hmm. I, I do get the sense sometime from both Wills and Robinson that in terms of liberal politics there's nothing but fish.
0: <laughs>
1: it, it's yeah. what it's what Nathan sometimes calls the Democratic Party of Prayer.
2: <laughs> I I didn't coin that phrase, I'm afraid. I wish I had. <laughs> but I mean the, the same
1: thing exists the same thing exists with conservative intellectuals for the right at, at times I mean that that is oh, sometimes true, is, the sense I get from first things for example um, mm. oh sure sure so I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm just attacking um, politically liberal Christians but it, it does seem to me that if if you are a Christian whatever your politics are you should be kind of semi uncomfortable with the institutionalized uh Positions taken by mm-hmm. the political parties, yeah. because I mean, this, the, the, at, the, at the moment when you think that that some sort of earthly politics adequately expresses Christianity, you have you have slid into idolatry. However, good those earthly politics are.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things that Christ repeatedly warns people of is. If you follow me, there are things you're going to have to lay down. Mm-hmm. And if the voice of the church to the culture from whatever side of the culture of the political culture that you're talking from, if if the voice of the church to the culture is you can come to us and keep and keep it all. You don't have to lay anything down. Um, all this in heaven, too. The, yes. Yes. All this in heaven, too. If that, if that If that's the message then i you've 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 fundamentally misrepre- misrepresented our master
1: <laughs>
0: so yeah
1: well this uh, this article has been very popular and very controversial in our circles um there's mm-hmm. been many many responses to it let's go around <laughs> the horn and and say what responses to it strike you guys as cogent or uncogent or interesting or Infuriating or anything else, David. Start with you and then send it over to Nathan.
0: Well, I am. Uh, I, I'm one of the people who hadn't heard of this essay until you sent it to me because I am not really that much on social media, so you know, I it didn't make the rounds with me, um, and as a result, I also didn't notice any of the any of the responses. So, anyways, uh, the one that I looked at was um, Al Mohler. Uh, responding to it, Al Mohler is the president of uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. He is um, uh, kind of a favorite person for for, for, for uh, progressive Christians to hate. Um, <laughs> Although
1: there was a very nice article about him in the Atlantic.
0: Yeah. Oh well, that's that's good. It, the the man is a machine. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a in a we need to fear him because of the terminator kind of way but he's he is an incredibly productive um writer and thinker his his speaking schedule is enormous um he writes so much and he's he's um wh- whatever you think of his, his positions um he's incredibly erudite and he he talks about everything um he he has a podcast that's like just him r- talking about everything, which is enormously <laughs> gutsy. Even if you you know, even if you disagree with him, that's that's enormously gutsy to be the one man who talks about everything. That's actually the um, title
2: of the podcast: "Just Me Talking About Everything."
0: Well, uh, the title just is Al. In, well, the, the the name of his podcast is "Thinking in Public."
2: Oh, there you go. Oh, interesting.
0: <laughs> which uh, which you know, again, enormously risky. Uh, So in this particular article, he has he actually has a lot of um, he begins with 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 some with having some very nice things to say about um, uh, about Alan Jacobs, Um, some very kind and laudatory, uh, uh, you know, compliments, paying, you know, giving giving him credit. Um, for, for you know, the, the good things that he's done um, as a scholar, as a Christian scholar, um, and so forth. So, you know, he kind of begins in that diplomatic way. But the main thing that he wants to call into question is what's really kind of a side reference in this article, which is to C.S. Lewis and Reinhold Niebuhr being on the covers of Time magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Mueller does is actually go back to those time magazines and look at the articles and the C in his, his points are first, the C S Lewis article is mainly about how in academia they hate him, but he's popular (laughs) and they hate him because he's popular with ordinary people and because he's popular with Christians. Right? So, so that the C S Lewis on the cover of time magazine isn't look at C.S. Lewis, this great public intellectual who is respected in both the 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 field of intellectual academia in the public sphere and within the Christian world, but this is C.S. Lewis. We normal people love him, but the scholars hate him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um, and that's the that's the Time Magazine article. The then in uh, Muller's point about Reinhold Niebuhr is is simply to go back and look at Reinhold Niebuhr's theology, in particular um, the ways that he embraces a kind of Bultmannian demythologi- demythologizing approach to the scripture, um, questioning. Uh, and, and this is this is a, a quote that he pulls from Niebuhr, and I, I've not read enough Niebuhr to to say is this is this accurate. But this is the quote he pulls, um, that, that those who are intellectually aware, quote, do not believe in the virgin birth and we have difficulty with the physical resurrection of Christ. And then another quote, we do not believe in other words that revelatory events validate themselves by a divine breakthrough in the natural order. Mm -hmm. Um, and, Another quote: The accumulated evidence of the natural sciences convinces us that the realm of natural causation is more closed and less subject to divine intervention than the biblical worldview assumes. Well, on this kind of basis, Moeller then steps in and says, "Yes, C.S. Lewis is not representing Christians in the public sphere quite as well as Jacobs would like us think, and also Niebuhr is not representing Christians." in the public sphere. Um mm-hmm. because he's you know, it's it, 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 he's making the Jay Gresham Machen. Christianity versus liberalism point. Um mm-hmm. if you if if your Christianity is mainly the moral teachings minus the supernatural stuff, is it Christianity anymore? Right. Um and again I've not I, I i don't I don't know Niebuhr well enough to know that the, whether or not that assessment is correct, but it, is, it is accurate
1: as far as I know
0: if that assessment is correct, then I think Al Miller has a fantastic point um you know it's not just Reinhold Niebuhr's politics or whatever, and you know I love the fact that he was opposing abortion in the public uh not not sorry that was newhouse I'm getting them conflated um, mm-hmm. you know you know. For one of the, one of the things that he talks about is Reinhold Niebuhr's insistence on the fallibility and sinfulness of humanity, knocking the bottom out of all of our utopian schemes. I'm like, that sounds great. Good job, Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, insert a little bit of you know, total depravity language into our discussions of of, of politics, but still, um, a Christianity without miracles isn't.
1: Certainly, a Christianity without the resurrection isn't.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes.
1: That's a pretty big one.
0: So you know, I, I think Moeller's Moeller's main point is you know you, you you cite this you cite these Time magazine covers to illustrate a particular moment as if there was a time when Christian intellectuals were a thing. But it doesn't. But on closer examination, it doesn't quite seem to be the thing that you want it to be, or want us to see it as. Mm-hmm. In fact, it looks more like the public intellectual sphere only wants the Christian intellectual. If the Christian intellectual has largely laid down the ideas, the the public intellectual sphere finds um, goofy. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Which say what you will about Moeller, he is uh, unwilling to do that. Yes. And I uh, I like him and hate him in about equal measure. <laughs> he drives me nuts <laughs> yeah, I, sometimes. Sometimes I, 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 I I'm never just knocked out of the park.
2: Yeah, I never know picking up a, a molar article whether I'm going to be on Team Moeller or if I'm going to say, oh goodness, I'm going to have to do damage control on this one.
1: I'd like his uh, colleague Russell Moore, who I just consistently love.
0: Moore is incredibly winsome if i was going to hold up somebody as you know is this is this what you want jacobs it, it might be someone like russell moore except that i don't know that russell moore represents what jacobs wants represented
1: you you've made a you've made a number of references here david that make me think you think jacobs is a political liberal
0: well i don't know He's not, i don't know the answer he has to that a question. he has a
1: blog at the american conservative
0: okay yeah but even so even even so, the people that he's holding up as as the good examples um, you know, and I think he's uh, there's some things that I think he he gets absolutely right um, when he says that it was the sexual revolution that was the main watershed mm-hmm. um, I, I I think he's absolutely nailed it. but when he doesn't step out and say, you know Marilyn Robbins would be you know Marilyn Robinson would be great if she just wouldn't you know, be you know, as you said, a sycophant with, with Obama and say something about Guantanamo and talk a little bit more about church. Well, yeah, but at the same time, you know, she's she's not representing me the, cons- the the Christian with conservative moral stances. That that that's the point at which I'm wondering. Okay, Jacobs, who who do you want representing us, and in what way? So so again, I don't know. I'm speaking out of ignorance but the people that he holds up seems to be the people that his audience in Harper's magazine are going to be the ones that are, are going to be the Christians that they like. And maybe that's just a move to appeal to that audience. So I don't know, but I'm open to correction on that point. Cause again, I've not read it.
2: Hmm. Well, I want to talk about, uh, two pieces briefly. Uh, the first one is from the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Seminary, and uh, the author is, I never know how to pronounce his last name, Owen Strachan or Owen Strahan or... Strahan. Strahan, okay, so none of the above. Very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but this piece makes the argument that basically that uh, Alan Jacobs is, is far underplaying the active and intentional marginalization of evangelical voices in the post-war period. Uh, The notion that, you know, the sciences, you know, just kind of stepped into a vacuum that the uh, Christian intellectual willingly vacated, uh, you know, he sort of brings, as a counter-narrative against that, this notion that in the Cold War period when, you know, the great scientific race against communism really sort of takes a, a center space culturally in the United States. It's also a moment where the atheism of a lot of, of prominent uh, scientific thinkers means that, you know, atheism, agnosticism, unbelief of various sorts uh, sort of takes over that place of prominence that was once held by a mainline Protestant, or yeah, mainline Protestantism, that is what I meant to say. So he says, you know, he brings up a few examples of people like Carl Henry, uh, people like, uh, trying to see here, I'm scanning it up, that was the name that I recognized most readily. But there are a number of folks who are doing public Christian work right now and who are calling the culture into question and who are uh, doing the kinds of work that uh, Alan Jacobs says that, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr and C.S. Lewis used to do. The difference is they just don't get invited on NBC. They don't get invited to uh, be keynote speakers at the academic conferences of learned societies. Uh, They are very actively and very intentionally left out in a way that sort of gives the lie to the voluntary exodus narrative. The other piece that I want to talk about, and I think this is even more interesting, actually comes from First Things. Uh, which is, you know, fitting since First Things was one of the central exhibits that Jacobs held up. And this is from R.R. Reno. Uh, the title is Speaking from the Peripheries. And the argument here is that the reason that we don't have public intellectuals now in the way that we did 70 years ago uh, is because the people who are doing public intellectual work Uh, have been largely co-opted by the sort of partisanism of modern American culture, not just political culture, but the culture more generally. Uh, And, you know, he doesn't cite these sorts of studies, but it brought to my mind, you know, recent studies that say that Americans are less likely to marry across political party lines than they are to marry across religious lines. Mm. So, in other words, statistically speaking, we Americans – are more likely to see a marriage between a conservative Jew and a conservative Presbyterian than we are between a liberal Presbyterian and a conservative Presbyterian. Hmm. And so you know, what this article uh, argues is that uh, the mainline Protestantism that was sort of the cultural matrix, if you will, of the middle 20th century has given way to become a sort of chaplaincy for the DNC In the same way that, you know, uh, a lot of the big public conservative evangelicals, and of course it's not hard to think of Jerry Falwell, Jim Dobson, folks like that, have become chaplains for the GOP. So he says that, you know, there are uh, Christian intellectuals out there, but—and honestly, I mean, Reno, you know, is advancing the point that I think, you know, should be advanced even further— We don't have an American culture anymore, but we have a plurality of American cultures so that you can have intellectuals who are public intellectuals, but they're not going necessarily to speak to a whole culture because there ain't one there.
0: Mm.
1: I want to talk briefly about some of the Twitter responses, which were very helpfully collected by John Fia from Mm -hmm. uh, Messiah College. Um, two in particular, Diana Butler Bass, um, who's a, a fairly major—would you call her emergent church theologian? I'd call her that. She uh, she says this is essentially just nostalgia that that he has he has nothing here but a wish for um for, for the the past to return. And furthermore, she says I think her uncharitably that he's been writing this same essay since she was in graduate school. Um, I. I i thought she was fairly rude in her response frankly um well i mean in in
2: in what little of her work that i've read she tends to take that tone
1: well she said um among other things that this is just a twitter response and her real response is the nine books she's written and when a person says that you're not going to understand me unless you read all my books i I guess i'm not going to understand you then (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the the more interesting response is from a person I, I've never heard of this guy. His name is Joseph Bottom. He he, he seems to be an activist and, and he is the one who pushed uh Jacobs into into the distinction between activism and intellectualism. And and he I mean he mm-hmm. utterly rejects it as a false distinction, but uh he, he had Jacobs um responding responding to it and I, I, I was very interested in what he said. He calls essentially the whole thing an act of white male privilege which, which I, I don't think that's fair because I mean his two examples of of potential Christian intellectuals are Cornel West and Marilyn Robinson mm-hmm. you know and, and it's not fair to say well how come he's not pointing to a black or woman intellectual in the 50s because well there weren't that many Christian or no his his omission of Martin Luther King is a more serious issue but like I said he explains it in, in a blog post by by distinguishing between intellectual and activist, which whatever you think of that distinction is a distinction that makes a certain amount of sense and would explain the omission of Martin Luther King in from the uh, from the essay. So I, I you know I thought those were were interesting points. I'm I'm not sure ultimately either one discredits the article, but I'm also not sure what I think about the article. So take it all with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Ultimately. Um, His analysis in this essay is descriptive rather than prescriptive. So he's talking about where the Christian public intellectuals went, but he doesn't give me a very clear sense of if or how we can get them back. What do you guys think? Is there any way to save the Christian public intellectual? Is it even a category worth saving? Did it ever actually disappear? Nathan?
2: I've already been tipping my cards, so I'll go ahead and uh, lay them on the table now. Uh, I don't think there is a culture to influence anymore. Uh, I think that there are Christians of influence. I think that the call for Christian intellectuals now is not one of seizing power from the top, because ain't no top to seize, but it is an act of invitation. In other, in other words, in the spheres where we operate, whether it be a podcast or whether it be a college classroom or whether it be more localized uh, public perches, if you will, Uh, to offer a vision of Christian theology, of Christian life, uh, of the Christian tradition broadly conceived that is appealing enough so that people will do one of those lateral hops uh, from one culture to another uh, that I think honestly is simply a part of 21st century life in a way that it wasn't really in the 1940s. I'll also take issue here, because I haven't had a chance yet, with Jacob's use of subaltern to describe Christian culture. This is a term that I'm familiar with, uh, largely from Gayatri Spivak's essay, Can the Subaltern Speak? And that term is used to refer to the untouchable class in colonial-era India. Uh, to say that evangelicals don't have the prominence that we did in, say, the George W. Bush era, is hard to dispute. To say that we're basically the same as untouchables in colonial-era India is more than exa- exaggeration. It's a lie. Yeah. So I, I'm going to say that subaltern we are not. A subculture we might be, but that ain't necessarily a bad thing.
1: Well, and if you're right and there's no culture, every all we have is subculture. So. Yeah, yeah. So either everybody's subaltern
2: or nobody is. Well, no, no, no. Subaltern means, I mean, you were in a place of being the victim, not only of political oppression, not only cultural oppression, but also that you're incapable of imagining yourself as a person. You know, the answer to that essay's question, can the subaltern speak, and I'll go ahead and do spoiler alert here. Uh, <laughs> no, they can't because if you actually get to a point where you can speak, you're not subaltern anymore, and that's just mm. the point. We want to eliminate the subaltern, not by exterminating them, but by bringing them up from subalterity.
0: Hmm.
1: David, what do you think?
0: Oh man, uh, is it a category worth saving? Um, I like his his idea of interpreter. Um. I like his idea of Watchmen. Both of those are both of those are 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 useful things. But um, the points that Nathan's raised means that um, we can't expect any one person to do that. Um, because there's um there's multiple there's multiple Christian communities and there's multiple public spheres. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So you know. Uh, maybe we need, uh, an interpreter between, um, you know, between, uh, socially conservative Greek Orthodox people and, um, the, uh, uh, political right in American politics. Mm-hmm. Wait, I know that guy. <laughs> um, Right, right, and so forth. So, so maybe we, we we don't need to be looking for this one big person who's going to do all of it, um, because there's there's multiple spheres, and and it, it's it's unfair to to expect any person to to have a foot in all the spheres and represent any of them with any kind of coherence. Um, you know, otherwise it's just going to get boiled down to nothing. Um, so I don't know maybe maybe just embracing the idea that there's multiple spheres and so that we need many interpreters and many watchmen, um, many people standing between many spheres and speaking. Um, also um, just you know, shameless uh, network plug um, did a profiles interview with uh, the theologian Kevin Van Hooser. On his book pastors as public intellectuals and one of the things that that he emphasizes in that book is pastors needing to needing to embrace their role as interpreters and watchmen of the culture to the Christian community and vice versa of of pastors needing to develop that um, those kinds of skills in a boots on the ground way not that they're ever gonna end up on the cover of Time magazine but that those particular activities need to be going on both in the macro and the micro level in terms of the Christian community. Um, And then uh, I guess the third thing that I would say is in some sense, the category that he's holding up is a historical accident. Um, Yeah. C.S. Lewis went on the BBC to give the talks that became mere Christianity, but he was invited onto the official government radio station because they were at war with Nazi Germany and buttressing the um, Christian identity of England with its moral foundation as opposed to and clear opposition to um, the the moral stances of Nazi Germany was something that the government itself saw as an important thing. All right. So to what extent did that um, wartime embrace of particular public intellectuals um Come because those in political power saw that voice as useful in that moment, and then what happens when they don't see that Christian voice as useful anymore? Um, well, what happens to uh, what happens to Newhouse? Mm-hmm. Um, you know it's, it's, it, just just being canny and realizing that sometimes our voices get heard because the king thinks it's useful for our voice to be heard, and then sometimes he stops thinking so. You know, I, I I think of our first, the first public intellectuals for the Christian community, the second century apologists, right? Well-educated guys like Justin Martyr and Tertullian, um, who were speaking from a position of, of no power to those who were in ultimate power, um, attempting to interpret the Christian community to the public, um, you know. Sometimes, sometimes that's what that stance looks like. It doesn't always look like getting respect.
1: I would add one more thing, which this, this essay is published in Harper's, which mm-hmm. I am confused about because, um, well, I mean, it makes sense because he's talking about speaking to, to a larger non-Christian society. And yet this essay doesn't seem to me to speak to non-Christian society at all. It seems like it's Mm -hmm. directed largely at Christians, and so Harper's is a weird place to publish it. Not exactly a hypocritical place. He's not doing what he accuses Marilyn Robinson of doing, but this seems like an article custom-made for first things. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I mean, it's it's cool to have Alan Jacobs in Harper's.
0: Well, do we have any idea how the typical Harper's reading audience read this essay?
1: No idea. The the responses I've seen have all been from from Christians.
0: You know, because because it's 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 very very weird. Because if if I was that audience, would I read this essay and say, "Oh, it's sad that there aren't any smart Christians anymore. We might like them better <laughs> if there were."
1: Well, I think that would be a pretty serious misreading of the article, don't you?
0: Well, I think it. I I I think it would too. But you know, if the if the title is "What Became of Christian Intellectuals,"
1: <laughs> right? Well, yeah. If they just read the title, I mean, I suppose yeah. somebody could go on Facebook and look at the comments on the uh, Harper's post posting the article. But
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: God knows, I don't want to do that. I don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't read Facebook comments for any kind of secular publication that talks about religion because I, I know I know what I'm going to see.
0: Yeah, I you could basically geez. write the comments. I don't read any kind of comments of anything ever. American
1: Conservative has a really great comments section. Okay. Anyway, um, if you have something to add to our what turned out to be a pretty long (laughs) discussion of this article, we'd love to hear it. Our email address is uh, christianhumanist at gmail.com. Actually excuse me. Our, our, uh, our web address is Christianhumanist.org. Our email address is the Christianhumanist at gmail.com. I'm sure it was me who made that error years ago, uh, who suggested <laughs> that be our email address, but man, I wish I hadn't. so it's the Christianhumanist at gmail.com Christianhumanist.org. Uh, please let us know what you think. Um, David, what's on tap for next week?
0: Well, last week we talk about we talked about uh, the lecture. And uh, I, I uh, tried to make my most winsome defense of the lecture, but um, I want to I want to tee you guys up um, to give a defense of the of the dialogue of the seminar. So we're going to be talking about um, the approach that you guys favor in terms of running a class.
1: I still think you should lecture us about seminars since we had a seminar about the lecture. <laughs>
0: I I don't know that any of our listeners would want to listen to that.
1: (laughs) Well, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Amberly Copeland. Our press liaison is Kristen Filippic. For David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.